0: The reading today is from Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land, And have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre of Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried my my rich treasures into your temples." You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them, from, remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Bleach, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, "I am a warrior." Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion.
1: Thank you, Becky. It's a long passage. I appreciate the faithful reading of the word. If you're uh, just joining us recently, we are in the midst of a series on the minor prophets. We've been going through Amos, and now we're in Joel, and we're going to go into Habakkuk here for the next uh, four weeks as well. And the prophets are are really tough. <laughs> this has been heavy, heavy things. You know, this this reading the, the scriptures every week. I mean, these are very difficult passages. Very heavy ideas that really do weigh on us. I was talking to Jake beforehand about how I'm kind of eager to hand off this mantle again to George, because when you really sit underneath the weight of the prophets, it's really uncomfortable, and it's really difficult. These topics of judgment and suffering and restoration, these are just minefields that we walk through that really mean a lot of things to a lot of us and are really difficult to wrestle with. And the prophets, as we, as we kind of get back into Joel here, this is the very end of the book of Joel, this is how it ends, it's helpful to be reminded of just what's going on here. And the prophet is speaking really to two groups of people, then and two groups of people now, to us here in the church as well. To one group, it's really calling us out. To those of us who are overly comfortable, right, who have very safe, seemingly secure lives, the prophets really speak strongly to us. Open your eyes. Look at the reality of things. See the pain and the suffering that others are going through and that you will be going through. Like pain and suffering is a part of this existence because of sin and because of God's discipline we will go through this. Everyone goes through pain and go through suffering. So many of us need to be woken up. We need to become uncomfortable and the prophet functions in that way to make us uncomfortable there's reasons that people don't preach to the prophets that often or study the prophets or when you read through the bible you kind of get bogged down in the prophets because it's uncomfortable right how many times do i want to hear about these pictures these images of judgment and pain and suffering especially when i can't relate it to my seemingly safe and secure life so they wake us up And on the other hand, for the other group of people, those who are in the midst of pain, those who are in the midst of suffering and betrayal and hurt, the prophets draw us back to God. They give hope. They really do. And they have these beautiful pictures of hope. They give a hope of restoration, and we talked about that a lot last week. This one day, and it was in here as well, the reading for today, one day everything that has been ever taken away will be returned to you. One day, all those years that the locusts have eaten will be restored to you. That there is hope that every wrong will be righted, that there will be true peace, that there will truly be a day in which everyone will finally and fully be satisfied. And that picture of restoration is really a a beautiful and hopeful one, especially in the face of loss. Many of us have lost a lot of things, sometimes because of our own failings, sometimes because of just this mysterious loss and hurt and pain that happens in the world. But that hope of restoration is really powerful. But what about for those of us who have suffered at the hands of others? Right, It's not just a cosmic suffering. It's not just the injustices of this world, of a child getting cancer, but of when someone who we see face to face and we know hurts us Where's the justice there? Right? It's one thing to hope for restoration, but what about them? What about that evildoer? Where is God in the midst of all of that? When the evildoer continues to go on with their life, when we see them every day, right? many of us have gone through this with betrayals and hurts and oppressions. Right? They don't just disappear, and we see them again or we hear of them, where, where was God in the midst of my hurt and in the injustice, the wrongs that were committed against me? And where is he now? When will this day of vindication finally come? When will God actually judge evildoers and reward the righteous? And the book of Joel really offers the hope of one day God will stand with us, and He will plead our case, and He will punish the evil doer. That there's this hope to be vindicated, right? That all of it will not be wasted and in vain, but that one day will be proved right. That God is on our side, and He always, always on our side. Even though in, during our life and during the things that we went through, it looked like evil was winning the day, and was everyone was getting away with everything, and nobody seemed to care. One day there will be a day of judgment. Last week, we talked a lot about that hope of restoration, of all things lost being restored. But like we've seen through the prophets, and we talked about a lot, you know, that there's not just one type of suffering, that there's multiple types of suffering. There's multiple types of suffering, even contained in the book of Joel, let alone the whole Bible. And so we've talked about that a little bit already. But this idea, because it's easy for us just to look at suffering, pain and suffering, As universal, and everybody has the same kind of suffering. Everyone experiences it the same. Everyone should respond to it the same. But I mean, it's just so far from the truth. There are all kinds of different suffering. Some of it is very deserved. I mean, some of you know this. Some of you have gone through pain and suffering that you absolutely deserved, that you brought upon yourself. You suffer because of your sinfulness, because of the life that you've lived, the decisions you've made. You suffer. God is a good Father, disciplines those that He loves, and He lets us experience the consequences of our sin, and we suffer for it, and we draw back to Him and we repent. For others of us, you know, the suffering we experience is just a part of life, the loss, the dear the, the death of those who are dear to us. For others of us, it's a very mysterious suffering. Why we don't know why certain things happen. But then There is this type of suffering, this betrayal and hurt, the type of suffering that we experience as a result of oppression. It's not a mystery. We can see it pretty clearly. I'm suffering because of you. You did this to me. This person hurt me. This person wronged me. This person betrayed me. It's a very different type of suffering, and it's a type of suffering that's really difficult because it really confronts us with a whole set of questions that are different than those other types. I mean, all suffering is difficult and hard. It's not to, to say that some is more difficult than others. I mean, but, I mean the loss of a child is, is horrible, but it's different. It's different than when a loved one, somebody you trusted, hurts you physically, emotionally, spiritually, just the betrayal and the hurt of it. Because it ask these questions. It's so immediate, and it's like, where was God in this? It's, it's a personal betrayal. It's a personal suffering. It's a personal hurt. It's an immediate and intimate type of suffering when you can see your perpetrator. You know who it is. It's not just the universe is against you, or even God is against you, but it's this person is against me, is seeking to undo me, has ruined me how can I, (laughs) what am I to do with this? How am I to interact with this person now for the rest of my life? How am I to view others in the same light? It's not just a philosophic suffering. It's a very on-the-ground type of suffering when we suffer at the hands of others. It's very personal. It's very overwhelming. You know, when you think of Israel, then this picture of judgment that's been coming all through Joel, all through Amos. Their suffering, their affliction, they're going to suffer a real suffering at the hands of real people. Assyria is coming. Babylon is coming. The book of Joel describes what they're going to do to Israel. They will take their children away. They will kill almost everyone. You know, the Assyrians, when they come, I mean, it is just this slow march they almost take like a year a mile just slowly coming down to Israel because they don't want to waste their time they just really go slow and they build a siege around a city they take slaves and they make them build the ramp by the time they finally take a city most of the inhabitants have committed suicide because they've seen the Assyrians and are about to it's it's unthinkable and if you're in Judah you've been watching this for years I mean, it's only a few miles away. you can see them doing this to city after city after city, coming for you, coming for your children. Where is God in the midst of this? <laughs> it's an overwhelming feeling. Nothing could stop this. Nothing is going to stop this. And if you read and if they're reading their Bible, if they're hearing from the prophets, it's coming for them. They're not going to escape it. Even though they've repented and they've turned to the Lord, and many do this. Josiah, right, he returns to the Lord and repents, and God says, I'm still not going to deliver you. They're coming, and they're going to destroy you. Just the pain of that. You could only imagine the amount of unanswered prayers from the temple that are going to the Lord as the Assyrians, as their enemies, are coming for them. Some of Israel has committed great sin and they deserve it, but not all of Israel deserves the fate that's coming upon them. And for us now, you know, it's easy to kind of look at it through that lens, but for most of us, we don't need a nation to (laughs) overthrow us or destroy us to feel the same weight of destruction, to feel that same feeling of being slaughtered and our children taken from us. Divorce is plenty fine for giving us that feeling, affairs and hurts, parents who hurt us and who betray us, co-workers and neighbors. I mean, it's, it doesn't, doesn't take much for us to be in the same position as, these, as the Israelites were, to feel the weight of sin, to feel the weight of our oppressor, to feel that affliction, the hopelessness. What could ever deliver me from this? The prayers and the seemingly unanswered prayers and God being distant and not protecting us or protecting our children from the evildoer. It's hard because it's a type of suffering in which it seems that God is incredibly distant. Where is he? He has the power to stop this. Why won't he? He's proven his power over and over and over why will he not stop what's going on? And so we suffer. And we suffer at the hands of evil men and women. Right? And it can seem like it's, we suffer for years and years. Right? You look at the scandals, the, the news, all these things. I mean, this evil goes on. It seems like unchecked for years and years. And for many, they'll never be vindicated. Where is the Lord in those days? Why won't he do anything? How am I supposed to trust God? How am I supposed to worship him? Because Joel has been calling us to this worship, to repent, to seek him, to worship him honestly in the midst of our suffering. But how am I supposed to worship a God who doesn't stop evildoers? How am I supposed to worship him honestly when I'm going to be destroyed, when I am being destroyed, when my life is being taken from me, when my children are being ripped away from me, How am I supposed to worship this God? That's the difficult question that Joel causes us to wrestle with. And it just breeds this bitterness and anger and difficulty in loving and forgiving others, but also God, in the midst of our suffering. Well, within the book of Joel, we see this beautiful picture of that valley the Valley of Jehoshaphat that Becky read about, this Valley of Decision, right, where the day of the Lord will take place. And it's really, I mean, it's, I mean look at those, if you have your Bible, right, I mean, look over that imagery again, and it's, it's the, the prophets, they write about this day of the Lord in so many different ways all the time. You know, and really in, to try to capture our imaginations, to try to wake us up to seeing it. And that Valley of Decision is a really powerful picture that Joel gives us, that one day, God is going to gather everyone into this valley, into this place. His people and everyone that has ever hurt his people. And he will bring them together. Can you imagine that? Again, if you've been hurt, this is a great hope. I want to face my evildoer with the Lord right there. He's going to gather everyone together and he will judge the oppressor. That no one gets away with anything. No matter how it looks, because boy, does it look like evildoers get away with it. No one gets away with anything. The Lord will repay them, he says, right? I've seen what you've been doing, I know what you've done, and I'll repay you for it. There will be judgment. That's a huge idea. It's sometimes easy to kind of, in culture, our culture, especially a Western culture, really has a hard time with that picture of God's judgment and find it very offensive, that there would be, that God would judge people and that he would be harsh with people, that he would condemn people, all those types of things. And it's a really Western objection because the rest of the world finds the idea of God forgiving everybody far more objectionable, right? I mean, how can you say that? to people who have suffered genocide, who have suffered in terrible losses, that their people are going to get away with this. What do you mean there won't be judgment? <laughs> Miroslav Wolf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, and he he went through the, the war in, in what was formerly Yugoslavia and the war, there, argues that, you know, without the day of judgment, how can I live at peace? He's an ardent supporter of pacifism, but he says, I cannot be a pacifist. I cannot live peacefully if I don't really believe that God is going to judge people. Otherwise, I'm going to eventually take judgment into my own hands if I don't believe that God is the one who is going to actually eventually judge people. It's a powerful image. There is going to be judgment. The Lord has seen everything that has been done, and he will take care of it. And in the end, His people will be vindicated. The evildoer will be judged and punished for his crimes, for his sins. And the people of Israel will have God with them, defending them. The Lord will stand with his people and say, I'm on your side. Even though it appeared like I offered you up, because he did, I'm taking you back. I never let you go. Even though I gave you into the hands of Assyria and Babylon, you're still my people. I've never left you. Even though it appeared I abandoned you, I'm now standing at your side on this day. And there will be an abundance, even though I let the locusts devour everything. And you went through peg, plague and pestilence. You went through wanting and starving on that day you will have plenty and you will be satisfied that no matter what happens to Israel even what they deserve because I mean there's been so much call to this I mean Israel deserves the judgment that they're coming that's coming to them God is never going to leave them no matter what they've done or what's been done to them God is with them no matter what I've done no matter what has been done to me God is with me, God stands with me, God defends me, He is my advocate, and I am vindicated in Him. So the prophet Joel, and all scripture, is really calling us to trust in God, who truly works all things for our good, even when we can't see it. Not even not see it, but even when we can see the opposite of it. what seems to be the opposite of it. I mean, Joel is calling Israel to trust and to worship God, knowing full well the devastation they're about to walk through, that they will be destroyed, that they are going to suffer incredible hurt and pain and loss, but he's calling them to still trust him, that he's going to work this for their good. He's going to work this for his glory. And we don't have to just see Joel to see this as true, right? All of Scripture, right? All of Scripture has been proving this point, is filled with this. And the prophets just really kind of point it to us in a a very powerful way, but that God is always at work. He's always reconciling. He's always turning suffering into glory. He's always entering into weakness to provide strength. That he is both, on the one hand, completely sovereign and in control, we see this from Genesis 1 through Revelation. God is in control. He's the maker of heaven and earth. All things are in his hands. He has complete control of all things. And he is also fully loving. And he, in his love, he allows us freedom. And he allows Israel the freedom to not trust him. Right from Genesis on. He can control everything. But out of his great love, he gives freedom to his people. And that he accomplishes his purposes, though, regardless of their decisions. That no matter what we do and what has been done, his purposes always succeed. And that he can, we can never be separated from him and never be separated from his love. One of the greatest images of God in the Old Testament and in the prophets is this shepherd, this Good shepherd who watches and takes care of his people and his flock. He cares for his sheep. He says no to his sheep in order to bless his sheep. He lets the sheep go through incredibly difficult things, even though they don't know what's going on or what the purpose of this is, this pain, this hurt, this sorrow. But he knows that it's for their good, that there's nothing that's outside of his care. There's nothing outside of his great love for us. Tim Keller gives this great quote, you know, that we will never know enough. This is kind of out of Job. We will never know enough to really be able to mistrust God. I'll never know enough. I can't see everything that God is doing. This is the God of the universe who is able to work so many things. If you just think of your life and where we've come and where we are, I mean, the 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 amount of coordination of seemingly random events and influences and things. It's unbelievable how God has worked and is working. We have such short vision, and I see something right now, but if I take a step back, right, and I see so many variables as to every good thing in my life. Why do I have this? Well, this would have had to happen, and this would have had to happen, and this would have happened. It's just un- it's unbelievable Either it's all random and by chance, or God is really orchestrating everything. And if He really is, I will never have a big enough picture to be able to know what's really going on. I just never will. I can never truly know enough to mistrust God. And we can never, if this picture of Scripture is true, we can never truly ruin our lives. Even though we sure feel like we've ruined our lives who we say it's over i've ruined it i'll never get it back i've gone one step too far or four or five steps too far it's, but it's I, i'm a lost it's impossible you can't ruin your life according to scripture israel can't ruin itself no matter how sinful they're going to become no matter what they're going to do they can't ruin it they can't ruin god's good plan and god's purpose it's impossible He's too great. God is just too great. He's too great for us to understand how he's working through all these coincidences in our life. And he's too great to have his plans thwarted by our sin and by the sins of others. So in the midst of suffering and pain and hurt, and especially oppression, it's easy to feel like everything has been ruined, right? I'll never be able to do what God had called me to do. I'll never be able to be this Person that I thought I was going to be. I'll never have that. You know, I can look at all these other people who haven't gone through what I've gone through, these other marriages that haven't gone through this, these other people who haven't gone through this, and say, right, it's, I'm, I'm a lost cause. I'll never have that. It's not true. It's not true. You can't thwart God's plans and His purposes, He will work them out. You can run. And you can sin and you can hide and you can do everything possible. But on the day of decision, <laughs> the valley, he's going to call you. You, he, you cannot run from his presence. His plans are too great. He is too great. But the hardship with this image in Joel is just if we actually believe it. If we actually think this is what's going to come. You know, what are you, actually, what are you actually hoping for? In the midst of our pain and our suffering, in the midst of our comfort, too, what do we actually want to see happen? What are we longing for? Do you hope for vindication, or do you only hope for restoration? And I was really realizing this as I worked through this. I really hope for restoration. Those images really get me. <laughs> but vindication doesn't so much. Why is that? Why don't I want to see evil people judged? Why do I just want all of the benefits of God, but not God himself? Because ultimately I want to be the judge of the world and I want to give everybody a free pass. You know, Are you just hoping to get back what you've lost but not have God at the end? Or do you hope to have restoration and to have God? But that would require you not being God if you want him to stand by you and to defend you That means you have to stop defending yourself. It means you would have to stop executing his justice and his judgments on evildoers in your life, which is a hard thing. It would mean you would have to actually exercise forgiveness and, and live in peace and rest, trusting that God is the one who will take vengeance. God is the one who will repay. God is the one who will do those things. The day of vindication is coming. For those of you who have been hurt deeply by others and people who are close to you, the day of your vindication is coming. That's what Joel is saying. You will be vindicated. The Lord will stand for you between you and your oppressor and he who has your side. Even though it looks like evil is winning the day, it's not. It's coming. Now, sometimes our vindication by the grace of God comes even in our lifetime. You know, you think of like the story of Joseph. Joseph was vindicated while he was still alive, right? His brothers sold him off into slavery. He went through tremendous suffering, unanswered prayers, right? In the well, in the dungeon, where is God in all of these things, And eventually he was vindicated. He had his moment with his brothers and forgiveness was given and he got to see God's plan and why he went through all of that suffering. He got to see it. Job didn't. Job never got to understand it. He got things restored at the end, but he never quite got to understand why he had to go through this. He didn't understand that it was being performed before the heavenly realms and what they were seeing. Sometimes we're going to see... Our vindication in our lifetime and sometimes we're not going to see our vindication while we live but ultimately we're called to trust in god's great love for us because how do we know that we can really trust god in the midst of pain and suffering how do i know how can i trust that this vindication is coming how can i trust that this day of judgment will actually come how can i trust god how can i worship him In the midst of this. In all of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture is unfolding and showing that that God is both in control and that he loves us. That this idea of God, this theology of his sovereignty, his control of all things, but also his great love and his great mercy and how those two things are in balance. We see that everywhere. And we see that from Genesis to Revelation, and we especially see it in Jesus. We especially see it in the Gospels where we see a God who enters into suffering and never abandons his people. Now, that's through the Old Testament as well. But we see it everywhere. God enters into the suffering of his people and he meets them there. He never leaves them. You know, the fiery furnace, Daniel and the lion's I mean, there's just countless stories of God entering into the suffering, but we see it truly and fully in Jesus Christ. God took on flesh and he suffered. Truly Suffered. Right, there's got to be a hierarchy of suffering, right? When you look at like, an, like a pet suffering, is different, right? Or an animal, right? And it seems like you know when a, when a pet suffers or breaks a leg or something like that, it's suffering, it's horrible. But it's different than when a person does it. It seems like it's more suffering. There's a consciousness to things. It hurts more. If you could imagine God himself suffering, the amount of suffering that he went through compared to the suffering that I go through, It's like the amount, I just can't even fathom the amount of suffering that God would have gone through to become a human, and to live the life that he lived, and to die the death that he died. He entered into suffering for our sake. What we see in Jesus is a God who takes upon himself the pain of the world, who takes upon himself the pain we deserve to give us the glory that he deserved. You think of Jesus in the garden just weeping blood, sweating blood, just the pain and the hurt, begging the Lord to take away this cup from him, the suffering that he's in. But even still, right, when he won't take away that suffering, he submits to it right, and worships God still, perfectly. A God who willingly gives his life for us. Right? It's it's an amazing picture of love. We will never know enough to truly be able to doubt or mistrust God. We just won't. I don't know enough to be able to doubt God's goodness. I will, I don't know enough, and I also know too much to doubt His goodness. It's kind of a both, right? I don't know everything in the world to be able to explain all of the world. Who does? I, can't, I don't know everything that happens. I don't know why everything happens. We just never will. But if Jesus is who he said he is, and all of the archaeological evidence, historical evidence, everything, literary evidence, i mean, just everything points to it. And if Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did and actually does this, as Scripture tells, I now know too much to doubt his love, to doubt God's goodness, I don't know, right, I don't know why he allows the suffering that he allows, right? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we get a picture of it. By God's grace, he gives us the ability to see some of the causes of our pain and our suffering and to be sanctified through it, to grow from it. I mean, what a gift from God that is. And sometimes we don't get to see it. We don't know why suffering happens and why God allows it all the time. But because I do know Jesus, I know that it's not because he doesn't love me or that he's far from me or that he's distant. It just can't be. I have evidence. I have proof of it, of that day of vindication. I have evidence for it. I have a certainty for it because I have Jesus. That even though he may destroy us and destroy my body, Right, though he slay us, right I know that he loves us. I know that he loves me, just like Joel in Israel. Even though we're about to lose everything, even though I may lose everything in this life, I don't doubt the goodness and the love of God because of Jesus. Just like Jesus and Paul will both do this. They lose their life, right, but they still trust the goodness of God. They both pray to have the suffering relieved, Paul tells the church, like, pray that, you know, that we'll be relieved from the suffering, from the imprisonments. But even if he doesn't, we still praise him. Because what is their hope? What is their confidence as they go through this oppression and being betrayed by the very ones who are the closest and most dear to them? How can they have hope? Because they have Jesus. Because they have hope in him. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he did what he said he does, then we can actually join the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 when he says, right? And this is Romans 8, 31 uh, through 39, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This could be written to Israel in the time of Joel. He who did not spare his own son, but who gave him up for us all. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Israel. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we see Jesus dying for us on the cross, securing for us our standing before the Father, we now have confidence that we will be vindicated. I'm on the right side. Even though I will sin and hurt and oppress, I'm on the right side because Jesus is on my side. I can't ruin his plan for me. I can't separate myself from him. He's done too much. So as a church, as as we see these images, as we go through the prophets, we have to open our eyes to not only just the pain and the suffering in the world and in our own lives. We have to honestly look at pain and suffering. That's really clear from Joel. We need to wake up. Many of us live far too comfortably Live far too seemingly secure lives, and we need to wake up to the fact that there, that pain and suffering is real, and is not to be run away from or to protected from because who can? But to honestly see it, to honestly weep and lament together, to join our brothers and sisters who are in the midst of suffering and weep with them. We clearly have got to do that. But let us also, as the prophet tells us, return to the Lord. Not that he will remove from us our pain and our suffering, but let us return to the Lord, lamenting and worshiping him because he is good and because he loves us. When we gather together, this is the point as a church, we gather to lament and to worship. We need to gather together and speak the truth to one another. To ourselves, we need to speak the truth of God's love to ourselves and to each other. That God is the God who defends you. God is on your side. God has not left you in the midst of your pain. We need to remind ourselves and each other of God's great love and mercy demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ. Right, the response to pain and suffering, I don't know why, but I know it's not a lack of love. And so we can honestly trust God even when we don't want to. We can honestly seek after that love and that comfort and the peace of Christ even when evildoers seemingly go unchecked because we have confidence in Jesus Christ. We have confidence in the day of the Lord that's fast approaching. But we need to be reminded of it. We need to see it continually. Let me pray for us this morning.